Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Hunt a Killer. I wanted to take a second to tell you guys about this new subscription box service called Hunt a Killer. You've heard about it on our show here before, and people are obsessed. Hunt a Killer sends a package to your home each month full of creepy correspondences from their, quote, killer curator. He's a little like Hannibal Lecter, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. Each month, you'll receive new clues. You get letters, articles, objects, tools, all adding to an ongoing murder mystery, and it's up to you to solve it, along with the thousands of other members all working together in their online communities. It's the perfect thing for an armchair detective looking to put their sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging into huntakiller.com and applying for membership. Hunt a Killer is growing so fast that they have limited new members to 500 per week. Once you apply and you're approved for membership, you'll receive a private link to subscribe. Then a package arrives on your doorstep each month. Waiting is the hardest part. They've been featured in BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and Bustle. Hunt a Killer is forming a cult-like community of web sleuths and amateur detectives. If you love pouring over creepy codes, ciphers, and clues, Hunt a Killer is simply perfect for you. And if it's not for you, I have a feeling you know at least one person that would love to receive it as a gift. I cannot recommend this membership enough. To help support our show, Hunt a Killer has offered a 10% discount for our listeners. All you have to do is go to huntakiller.com and enter code TRUTH for 10% off. That's huntakiller.com. Enter code TRUTH. Previously on Truth and Justice. Tammy was pregnant at the time and everything. And she had a, you know, Dr. Pepper scene. And, oh, you know, I would go get it. I had no problem doing it. We didn't have it in the refrigerator or one got it. Were you hanging around Tammy most of that day, do you think? Yes. We, yes, we were, yeah. Well, all the time Tammy and I were together outside of me going to work or me doing pulling some stunt, going going to do something, Tammy and I spent many, many hours of every day together. Troy also says that only himself, Jesse, and Shauna are in the apartment that morning. Tammy is nowhere to be found. And Troy says that Tammy did not live with them. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. Over the course of the last two months, we have reinvestigated Jesse's case, beginning with the initial crime scene, through three years of investigation, to Jesse's arrest, and last week we concluded with his trial and his conviction. The way that I approach these cases is to tackle them in four phases. Phase one is to investigate the case with the convicted as the prime suspect. In this case, to determine if Jesse Eldridge is actually innocent. 
I have spent the past four months on phase one, and I have reached the point where I am confident in saying with 100% certainty that Jesse Eldridge is absolutely innocent. I spoke with Jesse yesterday. He's changed a lot over the last few months. When I first connected with Jesse on the phone, he was skeptical. He was doing his best to open up to me, but I could feel the distrust in his voice. How do you earn the trust of a man who has suffered the worst form of betrayal? Sent away to die in prison by his own brother. As it turns out, you earn that man's trust by telling the truth. By telling his story. During our conversation yesterday, Jesse spoke to me through tears. For the first time, he allowed himself to be vulnerable. I listened to him as tears rolled down my own cheeks. All I've ever focused on was to find justice for Jesse and Kiao. And in my mind, justice simply meant setting Jesse free and finding the person who actually did this. But there's an even deeper effect of what we're doing here that had never occurred to me. Jesse told me that his family, his real family, the Perrys, the family that took him in and raised him, he said that they finally know that he is innocent. His children are finally hearing the real story and no longer look at their father as a murderer. Jesse told me that if this is as far as we ever make it, he's okay with that. Because at least now, the world knows that he did not kill Kiao Gove. Over the years, Jesse has had a lot of people step up and tell him that they were going to help him. He would get his hopes up, and eventually they would disappear. This roller coaster of hope made a hard man even harder. In January of this year, Jesse was short with me. Basically, past 45 minutes, I've, I've been sitting here sweating, trying to decide... Uh... Believe it or not, regardless of what everybody may think, there comes a time when you decide, you know, do I want to sit here and hope again, or do I want to sit here and, uh, I don't know, leave myself to question. But go ahead, sir. My contact with Jesse was met with skepticism, to say the least. But as time went on, he began to open up. This is from a conversation that I had with Jesse in February. I would just like to be able to live my life. As simple as that. I'd like to be able to hold my grandson. I'd like to be able to hold my wife without some guard looking over my shoulder. And, you know, being this close is scary. Being close is scary. You know, I read about all these other exonerations. I read about people giving back their time. I don't even want it. I don't even need an apology from anybody, from the courts, from nobody. All I want them to say is, hey, just live your life, man. I can do that. Out of, out of the 23 years I've been locked up, I know that I'm, I'm a tired, I'm, I'm a very tired man. <laughs> Let me tell you, buddy, I am very tired. And that's why, uh, real quick, uh, and let me get off this subject because it's killing me. Um, I had made a pact with myself when I got this time that I was going to, kill myself when I was 45 because uh, growing old in here is not the place to be, dude. But when Patricia come back in my life and everything, I said, well, let me put that on hold. I wouldn't stop it, but I put it on hold. Mm -hmm. And I told her, you know, 
You know, recently I have even told her, look, if I can't make it out of here, you, I'm going to have to do that because I'm not going to grow old in here and die. I, wa- I watch these old men and they're put through hell just because they got old. And I'm not going to do that to myself. And I'm not going to do that to my family. Jesse spent over a decade in prison with no hope and no support. But things changed for him in 2007. Shortly after Jesse moved to Texas, he met a young woman named Patricia. Jesse's sister, Christine, the one who Carol and Jay took with them when they left Tanya and Jesse on the side of the road in Michigan, at 16 years old, Christine ran away from home and got married. Her young husband's name was David. He was Patricia's brother. Jesse was 15 at the time, and he and Patricia became great friends. As the years went by, Jesse and Patricia remained friends and even tried dating at one time. Patricia attended Jesse's trial. She has always believed in his innocence. In 2007, Jesse wrote a letter to Patricia from prison. It was nothing important. Jesse was just looking for help to get a hold of someone. Patricia wrote back, and their decades-long relationship was rekindled. First as friends, and then two years later, in 2009... Patricia and Jesse got married. Why would someone marry a man who was condemned to spend the rest of his life in prison? I asked Patricia that exact question this January in Dallas. Fair warning, this clip is short, but you're going to hear an annoying jingling sound. Patricia was very nervous during this interview and kept fiddling with her bracelets. But this is what Patricia had to say when I asked her why she married a man who very well may never step foot outside of a prison. I don't want, I don't want to be judged or anything, right. so I don't tell a lot of people. Right. So, like, like, like a question that, that, that people are going to want to know is, so as far as for you, like in, in your mind, I know you love you loved him. Why did you decide that you wanted to be married? Like, what, what was the, the purpose in that for you? What does that mean to you? It means that I got to marry my best friend. I'm sorry. Um, And be with somebody. And it's kind of hard to explain. It's not hard to explain. When Jesse came into the picture and we were talking, you know, it brought back all those those same feelings that we had when we were young kids. The times that we were able to spend together, he spent time just listening to me talk. And those those same respectful feelings were still there. That same attitude, that same prideness, that same self-assurance that he's always had. Even though he may not have felt it, he still showed it. Mm-hmm. But he had so much tremendous respect for me and love for me. I'm like, wow, after 20-something years, you still have that? And I was like, oh, no, you don't. After He's like, no, I really do. Like, I would do anything for you. And, you know, just, just to make you happy. And if you chose not to marry me or walk away... I, I would totally understand, but I would still love you. Once Patricia came back into Jesse's life, she took up his torch and played a huge part in working towards his exoneration. And it was through Patricia that Jesse was able to reconnect with his daughter, Nicole. Nicole lives with Patricia now, and together, they are two of only three people in the world that believed in Jesse's innocence. See, it's hard for most people to wrap their brain around the fact that wrongful convictions do indeed happen. The majority of the population believes that if someone is convicted, then they must be guilty. 
But in Jesse's case, it hasn't taken long for everyone listening to understand that he had nothing to do with Kiao's murder. By simply reporting the full picture of what's in the police reports and what happened at trial, it has become painfully obvious that Jesse was framed. And just knowing that has changed Jesse's entire outlook on life. You know, you done, God damn, man. Excuse me. Um, dude, this has been the hardest goddamn time of my motherfucking life, and I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's very, very hard. But I also don't... I don't want to die in here anymore. Yeah, it sounds weak now, don't it? It doesn't sound weak. But dude, over the past over the past four or five months, once uh, Miss Clayton and you got involved in all this, this it don't make it easier because I didn't do nothing to deserve. Somebody needs to really point it out to me if I did do something to deserve this then point that out to me somewhere, somewhere, somehow. But I've been through my own mind and everything I've ever done in my life, and I can't figure it out. I can't see it. Whatever I've done, I paid for one way or the other. But everything you've done, everything y'all, all of y'all have done, I want you to go on, man. I don't want you to stop. Hey, they have a riot here and I get killed. Please don't stop. Because I got a, I got a wife and I got kids and I got grandson, grandchildren that I really want them to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I didn't go out there and, and kill this gov. Phase one of this process has had a profound effect on Jesse. Just knowing that there are people in the world that now believe in his innocence means the world. But once I determined that Jesse was actually innocent, it was time to move on to phase two. Once we determine that someone has been wrongfully convicted, the next step is to figure out how it happened. If a person is wrongfully arrested and convicted for a crime that they didn't commit, then we should be able to clearly discover what went wrong. And in Jesse's case, I think that we have quickly accomplished this. It's painfully obvious that Troy lied to Watts and at trial. Digging deeper, it appears that Jesse and Troy's mother initiated Troy's involvement in the case, most likely motivated by reward money. Based on Christine's testimony, what Jesse has told me, and what I have personally observed, it's clear that Carol holds all the control in her relationship with Troy. Once Troy was dragged into this, Watts took over and pushed and pushed and pushed. He convinced Troy that he had evidence of Jesse being on the crime scene, and that along with that, Troy's own DNA was found. As Troy resisted, he continued to manipulate by telling Troy that Jesse was claiming that he was the culprit. Finally, Troy tells the story that gets Jesse convicted. At trial, Jesse's attorney failed to call Shauna Couples to the stand and confront her with a statement that directly conflicted with Troy's affidavit and testimony. In fact, Miller completely failed to attack Troy's credibility at trial at all. 
All of this coupled with the waiving of the right to a jury and instead passing the decision of Jesse's guilt onto a judge who had spent the previous decade working for the DA's office that was trying the case. When you add all of that together, what do you have? A clear and convincing explanation as to how Jesse Eldridge was wrongfully convicted. Phase one of our process was to determine if Jesse is actually innocent. And the answer is, yes, he is. In phase two, we were tasked with figuring out if Jesse is innocent, then can we explain how he was convicted? And the answer, again, is yes. So now it's time to figure out what we're going to do about it. In phase three, we dissect the trial and try to find elements that Jesse can use in a habeas proceeding to have his conviction thrown out based on the fact that he did not receive a fair trial. What is a fair trial? What does fair actually mean? It means that your case is judged by an impartial jury. Or if a defendant waives the right to a jury an impartial judge. It means that the defendant is represented by an adequate defense attorney. It means that that defense attorney defended him to the best of his ability and to industry standards. It means that the prosecution played fair. They didn't offer false testimony or evidence to secure their conviction. It means that the prosecutor turned over all material exculpatory evidence to the defense prior to trial. These are the things that we look for in Phase 3. Brady, Strickland, was there bias or prosecutorial misconduct? In Jesse's case, we've already identified a few indicators that he did not receive a fair trial. Colin Miller explained in this week's Friday follow-up that if, and it is still a big if at this point, but if Carol or Troy Eldridge were paid the Crime Stoppers reward money for their testimony, then Jesse's conviction could be thrown out on the basis of a Brady violation. Furthermore, we have Shauna Couples' written statement. Shauna's statement is a double-edged sword for the state. If this statement was turned over to Jesse's defense, then we could be looking at an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Shauna's statement is a first-hand account that directly conflicts with Troy's testimony. Had Miller called her to the stand, her testimony would have been crippling to the state's case. Blackman had one witness with an ever-changing story and no corroborating evidence. Judge Warder could not ignore the fact that his own fiancé says that he's lying. Warder would have had to been forced to weigh Troy's testimony against Shauna's, and in doing so, she would have to consider the motivation for either of them to lie. By writing his affidavit and testifying against Jesse, Troy became eligible for Kenneth Gove's $10,000 reward, and possibly the Crime Stoppers money. He also avoided his own arrest for the murder based on the fact that Watts had told him that his DNA was on the scene, Jesse was accusing him, and Troy refused to take a polygraph examination. Troy had everything to gain by lying, and everything to lose if he told the truth. Shauna, on the other hand, Shauna had no motivation to lie when she said that Jesse never woke Troy up that morning. That is a fact that Judge Warder could not have ignored. I believe that if Miller had Shauna's statement in his possession, then we have a strong case for ineffective assistance of counsel. The other side of this double-edged sword 
is the fact that if the defense didn't have access to this report, then the state would be on the hook for a Brady violation. Shauna's statement to Watts is clearly material and exculpatory. The state was required by law to turn this report over to the defense. Shauna is a catch-22 for the state. Either the prosecution turned the report over, which could mean ineffective assistance of counsel, or they didn't turn it over, and it becomes Brady. Either way, the fact that Shauna was not called to the stand was a clear violation of Jesse's right to a fair trial. Without Shauna, Jesse was fighting the state and his brother with both hands tied behind his back. And sadly, Shauna wasn't the only important witness that Miller failed to call to the stand. The information that I'm going to present to you in the second segment of today's episode is guaranteed to give you flashbacks to the Anan Syed case. This weekend, I was reading through the comments about the show on Audioboom. One of the comments posted reads as follows, quote, Jesse did not kill this woman. I know. He does not have it in him. This comment was left by none other than Jesse's 1991 girlfriend, Tammy Autry. In July of 1991, as you know, Jesse was living with his brother Troy, Troy's girlfriend Shauna, and Jesse's pregnant girlfriend, Tammy Autry. Jesse has always maintained that on the night before Kiao was murdered, he, Troy, Shauna, and Tammy were at a party at the apartment complex. The next morning, Tammy wasn't feeling well and asked him to get her a Dr. Pepper. Jesse maintains that he walked across the street to the gas station, bought a Dr. Pepper for Tammy, a coffee for himself, and a newspaper. If Jesse's story is true, then Tammy would have been his one and only alibi witness. According to him, he never left her side the morning or the day of the murder other than the quick trip to the Circle K to get Tammy her Dr. Pepper. A few months after Kiao Gove was murdered, Jesse and Tammy broke up, and it wasn't a pretty breakup. Tammy left Jesse when he started using again and wouldn't let him see his daughter unless he cleaned himself up. The relationship became even more strained when Jesse took Nicole from Tammy. He has told me that his own actions had cost himself the relationships with his other children, and he wasn't about to miss out on knowing his daughter. The point here is that Tammy and Jesse, to put it mildly, had a strained relationship. When Jesse was arrested, Nicole was three years old. One thing that has always bothered me is why was Tammy never called to testify at trial? According to Jesse, she was his alibi. In one of my first phone conversations with Jesse, I asked him why Miller never called Tammy to the stand. Why didn't they call Tammy as a witness? I mean, she seems like she was your greatest witness. She, uh, she was your alibi. I, I don't know. They wanted to contact her the day after. I don't know. Uh, I couldn't get a straight answer. It was like Miss. It was like Miller had given up. He had given up. I think he was told, "Let it go. Let it roll." Because it was, you know, I fought it 15 months in there, 16 months. But I think he just, uh, I think somebody had told him, let it roll. Because he didn't even really cross-examine Troy when he was on the stand. Nobody, right. there was nothing. 
I mean, but why? I I didn't get the answers. Why would you make a verbal agreement with the DA, especially in those times, about a polygraph, and then turn around and the DA said, hey, it don't count. Well, you had a verbal agreement. It, it should have counted. Something. It was, it was a mess. Well, the polygraph, you know, it may not be admissible in court, but it should have been enough for the prosecutor for the prosecutor to just drop the charges well, prior to, I mean, with everything else. Well, that's what they used to do now. I mean, they still do it. If you can, if you pass polygraph nine times out of ten, they'll drop the charge and uh, start the investigation over. But for my case, it was like all the rules were threw off. And I don't know if it was because they were out to get me. I, I can't say that. I'm not a parent. I'm not schizophrenic or nothing. Um you know, there's a million people in Dallas. I'm, I'm not one that they picked out just to get. I don't know. Did you talk to Miller quite a bit prior to the trial? Like, did was your was your attorney aware of the fact that Tammy was at the apartment with you that morning? Yes, he was aware of every bit of that, and he waits till the day after to go send his investigator to get her state. The day after the trial? The, yes, the day after. Day after I was. Sentenced and convicted. Did he? Do you know if he ever contacted her prior to the trial? That I'm not clear on. No, sir. I'm not clear on that. Okay, but they, he actually got a statement from her after the fact. I was stunned to hear that Tammy had actually given a statement, but according to Jesse, it was too little, too late. The only mention of Tammy during trial was Troy's testimony stating that Tammy did not live with them at the time of the murder. The first question that needs to be answered is, was Tammy Autry living with Jesse, Troy, and Shauna at the time of the murder? And secondly, does she know what Jesse was doing that morning? After this conversation with Jesse, I was able to obtain a copy of Tammy's statement through an open records request. Tammy's statement written after Jesse was convicted and sentenced, reads as follows. My name is Tammy Lynn Autry. She then gives her address, date of birth, driver's license, and social security number. During the period of time from June 15, 1991 through August 1, 1991, I was living with Jesse Eldridge and Troy Eldridge and Troy's girlfriend, Shauna Couples, at 9633 Old Seagaville Road, apartment 203. I specifically remember that on the night of July 24th, 1991, there was a party in our apartment complex, and we did not go to sleep until approximately 4 or 5 a.m. The next morning, Jesse left the apartment at approximately 8 a.m. and went to the Circle K to get a newspaper and a Dr. Pepper. I do not think that Troy was in the apartment at the time. I remember that when Troy arrived home, he and Shauna had a fight because Troy showed up at home with scratches on his back. Troy and Shauna also wrote a letter to social services on my behalf when I was living with them in order to assist me in getting my application for food stamps and AFDC approved. The letter stated that I was living at 9633 Old Seagullville Road, number 203. I also know that once Troy made a lewd comment about Mrs. Gove to Jesse when she went jogging by them. Signed, Tammy Lynn Autry. According to Tammy's affidavit, she was indeed living in the apartment at the time of the murder, and she has documentation to prove it. This affidavit, along with the documentation regarding Tammy's address, was found in Jesse's direct appeal file. His lawyers attempted to bring the statement in as new evidence in the appeal. However, it was not accepted by the appellate court, which was no surprise. 
According to the American Bar Association, quote, an appeal is not a retrial or a new trial of the case. The appeal courts do not usually consider new witnesses or new evidence. Appeals in either civil or criminal cases are usually based on arguments that there were errors in the trial's procedure or errors in the judge's interpretation of the law. End quote. Although Tammy's affidavit wasn't useful in Jesse's direct appeal, it can be used in a habeas claim as evidence newly discovered after trial. Again, though, a habeas claim is also not a retrial of the case. Like I mentioned earlier, a writ of habeas corpus is an attempt to show that the defendant's constitutional right to a fair trial was violated. In Tammy's case, we find a direct parallel with Asia McLean in the Anand Syed case. Anand claimed ineffective assistance of counsel based on the fact that Asia, his alibi witness, was never called at trial by his defense attorney. In order to prove ineffective assistance of counsel, there are three elements that need to be addressed. Number one, could the witness's testimony have resulted in a different outcome at trial had they been called? In Tammy's case, her testimony would clearly have been material and exculpatory. Much like Shauna, Tammy's testimony would have been her word against Troy's. And again, Judge Warder would have been forced to weigh the validity of Tammy's testimony against Troy's. We've talked about all of Troy's motivations to lie, but what motivation does Tammy have? She and Jesse had split up years before, and, well, to put it bluntly, she hated Jesse. The second element of an ineffective assistance of counsel claim is to determine if Jesse's attorney was aware of the fact that Tammy was his alibi prior to the trial. According to Jesse, he absolutely was aware of this fact. And thirdly, we have to determine if Miller chose not to call Tammy for strategic reasons. This was the argument that Thero Vignaraja made at Anand's habeas hearing. He claimed that Anand's attorney, Christina Gutierrez, made a strategic decision not to put Asia on the stand. This argument, however, was quickly shut down by expert witnesses who pointed out that the Strickland standard is crystal clear on this matter. You cannot make a strategic decision to not call a witness until you have, at the very least, made contact with the witness to assess their credibility. Period. In Adnan's case, Thiru kept throwing examples at the expert in an attempt to get him to say that there is some exception and reason to not contact an alibi witness. Any reason at all. In one example, and I'm paraphrasing here, Thiru asked if it was necessary to contact an alibi witness if your client says that they were in Baltimore and the witness claims that they were on the moon. The experts reply, then you better call NASA and confirm that that witness was not actually on the Earth. The case law is crystal clear. You cannot make a strategic decision to not call an alibi witness without speaking to them first. So the question then becomes, did Miller contact Tammy before the trial? As you heard, Jesse doesn't know. All he knows is that he told Miller to contact Tammy because he was with her at the time of the murder. So there was only one way to find out for sure. I had to track Tammy down. Did Jesse's attorneys ever contact you before the trial? Did no. No, sir. Nobody ever had? They never called me. I guess they didn't call me because the way I see it, I know too much. Okay. 
Tammy told me that the only investigator that she ever spoke to was a defense investigator that approached her after Jesse's conviction. He asked her what she remembered about the day Kia was killed and then asked her to swear out the affidavit that I just read to you. At this point, we have Jesse telling me that he told Miller about Tammy, and we have Tammy telling me that she was never contacted by the defense until after the trial. That's two out of the three prongs for ineffective assistance of counsel. The third and most important element of this claim is what exactly would Tammy have testified to? We know what her affidavit says, but what does Tammy say happened on that Thursday morning today? That's the same night I got sick. The night of the party? Yes. Okay, and then what happened and the next morning when you woke up? That morning, I asked Jesse to go to the store. I remember this, to get me a Dr. Pepper. And then uh, he, he came back from the store? He came from that, back from the store. He gave me a Dr. Pepper. And if he killed somebody, he would have blood on him. And I would have had it on me because we had sexual intercourse that morning. I sent, I was sick. I sent Jesse to the store. He came home. We did what we did. That morning was a normal morning. So I'm guessing. Well, only thing I can tell you is I know Jesse didn't do this. And I don't like the man. And I'll tell you from day one. I love Jesse with my heart. But when he took my child and kidnapped her. So I'm having, you know, I'm doing this. For what I know, not because I like the man. Jesse might beat somebody up, honestly. But I never see him kill anybody. Never. The man didn't do it. Tammy Autry knew Jesse better than anyone during the summer of 1991. They lived together. They were intimate together. They even had a child together. Tammy, despite the fact that she wanted nothing to do with Jesse after he took their child away from her, would have stepped into that witness stand and told the truth. She knows that Jesse did not murder Kiao Gove. She was ready to testify in 1996, and she's still willing to testify today. Phase three of our investigation is not over, not by a long shot. There is still plenty more of Jesse's trial to dissect. Allison Clayton and her team have been and are continuing to do exactly that. While Allison and her team attack the transcripts, for now, it's time for us to move on to the fourth and final phase of our investigation. It's time for justice. It's time to figure out who killed Kiao Gove? The northeast corner, there's a little road that turns back off into a neighborhood. Then my aunt was coming out of that neighborhood, and they was actually on the north. I don't remember the name of that street, but they were on that uh, street to the north of the high school, which is the back of the high school. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for this episode was created and scored by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Tate Krupa, who designed and created our logo. And thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Mueller, and Sarah Hoyt. 
I also want to thank Chris Brinkley of sylviaconsultants.com for creating and maintaining our website. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Remember that every week you can send us in your questions via email, Facebook, Twitter, or even a voicemail at 269-224-2833 for our Friday follow-up episode. To keep up to date, you can like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.